This episode is sponsored by Faith, Hope, and Connection, a 30-day devotional for adoptive and foster parents. So if you are a foster or adoptive parent feeling like you need some more hope for this really complex journey, or you're feeling really discouraged or misunderstood, you're going to want to jump into this book that has real, often raw stories from adoptive and foster parents in the trenches. It has scripture and faith-filled hope pointing you to Jesus and really honest reflections to speak courage to your soul and remind you that you are in fact not alone. This devotional has contributions from 30 authors, all foster and adoptive parents, who offer a window into their own lives and families. You're going to recognize yourself time and time again in their words. Faith, Hope, and Connection, a 30-day devotional for adoptive and foster parents, is truly a treasure trove of wisdom and grace for foster and adoptive families. You can grab your copy from Amazon. It comes in paperback or Kindle version. Search for Faith, Hope, and Connection, or head to the show notes for this episode for a quick link. Welcome to the Adoption Connection podcast, where we share resources by and for adoptive and foster moms. I'm Lisa Qualls. And this is Melissa Corkum. Don't worry, we get it, and we're here for you. Hi, friends. Welcome to episode 111 of the Adoption Connection podcast. This week, we'll be talking more about equine-assisted therapy and why it's such a great tool to help our kids who really have trouble regulating their emotions or may have trouble interacting in close relationships with other human beings. That was such an interesting conversation. I learned quite a lot from our guest, Rebecca Britt. She uh, founded a program called Stable Moments, which is a mentorship program that helps uh, foster and adopted youth develop life skills through community mentors and equine-assisted learning. Rebecca is a social worker and horse trainer with a certification as an equine specialist in mental health and learning. Through the growth of the Stable Moments pilot program, Rebecca has developed a model and is offering it as a practical curriculum to anyone wishing to serve foster or adopted children. So I think you're really going to enjoy this interview. Hello, Rebecca. Welcome to the Adoption Connection podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I'm really glad that we're going to have this conversation today because we had the opportunity, Melissa and I, to be on your podcast and we were so interested in the conversation and we thought, wow, we need to bring Rebecca onto ours. Do you want to tell people just a little bit of what you do? Sure. So I am the founder of Stable Moments, and Stable Moments is a mentorship program for children uh, who have been in foster care or have been adopted. It's a one-on-one mentorship program, but it also uses equine-assisted learning to develop life skills for healthy transitions into adulthood. So let's go back before you ever got involved in equine therapy, before you developed that program. What first led you to want to do this work, to work in caring for children with early trauma and their families? Yeah, so um, it's amazing how God works in your life because I really just started as a very little girl wanting to be with horses. Like what little girl doesn't want to be with horses? But I begged my parents to get me riding lessons every time we would pass by this farm. And they didn't. They just like, whatever, she loves horses like every other kid. 
Um, but one like time when I was eight, nine years old, I just got off the school bus at this horse farm. And I was like, you know, and you know, I think that willpower and determination has really proved fruitful for me as an adult, <laughs> but, uh, it was probably, you know, much to my parents, you know, chagrin, but so I got off the barn or I got off at the barn and I started kind of on my journey with horses. And what I wanted to do was learn how to train horses. But really there in my area, there was only lessons to ride horses. There wasn't like a lesson to train. So in my teens, I just started grabbing thoroughbreds off the racetrack. I knew they needed to be rehabilitated and um, I wanted to train them. And it was very, very difficult uh, to do so. So I started learning about natural horsemanship. And I promise you this relates to children and family. <laughs> so, so I started learning about natural horsemanship and uh, that's very much about learning the herd psychology to use rather than like breaking a horse or beating a horse down to get them over a jump like we used to do like cowboys. It's very much about learning herd psychology so that um, you can speak their language to get that desired result very much partnering with. So I had no clue that I wanted to work with children and families. I did suffer some of my own uh, sexual trauma as a kid, which really made me use the horses as like an avenue for safety and security and feeling unjudged and unshamed. So horses were really a container for me as, as a youth. So when I, I decided to go into social work because I felt ostracized, I felt like the community didn't take care of me as a kid. So I went into social work like a lot of people do when they have their own traumas, right? And I thought I wanted to be like a probation officer or something, like more of the accountability route. But the first job hiring in a recession was a post-adoption case manager. And I had actually had two cousins that my, my little cousin uh, died of cancer at eight years old and his dying wish was that my aunt and uncle adopt kids. So when he died, they did. And they were children that were diagnosed with reactive attachment disorder. Most of their trauma had happened in a foster home. But I had some, I had some experience with the issues they dealt with. Like they, I was just a kid, but they were locking their pantry. They were putting alarms on doors. They were trying to keep kids away from the food. I mean, there was just all these things that they didn't really know how to be trauma informed. It wasn't a thing then, but I did know enough about my adopted cousins that I was able in an interview for that job to kind of talk about reactive attachment disorder, which, you know, at $12 and 70 cents an hour, they were like, sure, that's a lot of experience and, and you've got the job. But what was really neat was um, in that role, I had amazing supervision and they taught me about trauma and they taught me about how to uh, intervene with these children and the principles that were, um, the, tra the trauma-informed principles that I learned were nearly identical to the principles of natural horsemanship. So that's that was my entry into working with children and families. Wow, that's a really neat story. I love hearing that. And I love hearing the way you could see that parallel already. You know, mm -hmm. even as a fairly young woman, you know, you could see the parallels between what you had already learned about mm -hmm. horses and what you were seeing in traumatized children who who are basically in traumatized families because when you join when you add children with deep trauma to your family your whole family is going to be changed we, we've seen that over and over right. so when you first started out 
how did you view sort of the the parents the the source of problems how did you view bringing these kids toward healing yeah so i think i came into this like a lot of social workers do and for some reason um it's really easy for us to have compassion and dedicate our life to vulnerable children right and for some reason we don't give the same uh, we don't give that same empathy to adults. I mean, we see it all the time with kids that go from 17 to 18, and now he's a loser that's not keeping a job. But if he was 14, we'd give him a, a hand. I think that when I started to learn about trauma-informed interventions, I was I was like so excited to learn about it and had my little tool backpack and went into these home visits. And I, you know, used what my supervisors gave me and I laid it out for the parents and I said, Hey, try this, try this, try time in, you know, try to be relationship based and try to be non shaming. And then I would watch like the kid, you know, come in and the parents might say, you know, why didn't you do your homework last week? Tell Rebecca that you didn't do your homework. And, you know, like she, she just doesn't listen to anything. And so then I would be like this poor child. I would go back to my supervisor and I would say, the parents are mean and they don't get this trauma informed stuff. And I don't really know how I can work with this because, you know, they're not understanding uh, her trauma and they're not understanding how to respond to it and that this is just a reaction or a triggered response or whatever. And it really caused a lot of friction in my work because here I was trying to serve a child and I was almost like siding with the kid, you know, not fully and not telling the kid that, but that's how I felt in my work. And I got very much if the parents would just then the kids could heal. And I had a really, really good supervisor tell me, hey, Rebecca, what if you took all of the principles that you have to deal with the kids, to see the kids' trauma through their behavior, to interact with them in an empathetic, in a playful, in a non-shaming way, and what if you applied that to the parents? And I mean, I don't know why it was so profound to me, but it was like so profound. And I started to be able to be like, wow, like this is tough. Let me know more about your story. Let me know more about why you chose to foster and adopt. And what has this journey been like for you? And, you know, then you start getting a relationship and it's like, maybe this is the first time parents have had somebody that will even listen. You don't know how many intake assessments I did that were three hours long, or just not even intake assessments. It was my seventh visit and they're three hours long. They never got a person that would listen. I mean, just listen to everything and anything. Um, so I, I found that was really important. But yeah, the uh, I definitely learned that you need to start with the parents and care for them as much as you would care for the children, there's, you know, there's a holistic view of bringing this trauma-informed work. Yes, I completely agree with that. I think so many parents are beaten down, you know, they're exhausted, they're discouraged, they're doubting who they are. And I'm speaking from my own experience. I could be saying all this in the first person. I doubted who I was. Was I even a good mom anymore? Had I ever been, you know, maybe I just thought I was, you know, and, and no matter how hard I tried, it just didn't seem like anything I was doing was going to make enough of a difference to turn around this really 
really difficult situation in my family. And the first time I met a therapist who looked at me and said, how are you doing? How are you holding up? I broke down crying because everybody had been really interested in teaching me new things. And that's great. We all need good tools, but parents need nurture too. Parents need felt safety. They need to know that the caseworker or the therapist is a safe person for them so that then their brains are calmed enough that they can actually begin to learn and heal. And then they can help their children heal. So I think so many times we start at the wrong place. And you're so right. We have to start not just in teaching the parents, but supporting them and taking, helping reduce that shame so that you are not alone. You are not the first parent who has ever told me that they don't think they're going to make it with this child. You know, I, I hear that. I understand that. So I personally am very thankful that you share that story of your really a journey, a progression in your understanding of how to serve families. Yeah. And I, and I feel like too, I noticed that. So once I would, like there was a group of parents that were just like always on the trauma informed train, like they were trying so hard. And then I, you know, I had so much empathy for those parents because every time I would come, they would report. So I had the parents that would report everything that their kid did wrong. And right. We tried to switch that to like, let's, let's talk about what worked. And then, you know, on the side, we can talk about some interventions, but I had a lot of parents too, that reported everything they did wrong that week. They come, they're like, Oh, you're here. I did tell him to go to his room on Tuesday and I was just done. And I shut the door and I know we should have done time and I should have, but I just couldn't freaking let him help me do dinner. I'm like, oh my gosh, it is okay. It's totally okay. And at the end of the day, you're the parent. You make decisions. And if, if, if it's bad, then you have an opportunity for repair, which is a beautiful part of healing and something that these kids haven't had modeled for them a lot. So we can get excited even about our mistakes in repair. And I felt like some of my most rewarding parts of my work were letting parents off the hook sometimes when they felt so bad about how they were doing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we parents, we need redos. We need to be able to start over. We need to be able to, I mean, we're creating new neural pathways too. So mm -hmm. even when we, when we're going down this great track and we fall off and we parent in a way that is not therapeutic and healing and connected, when we get back on the path of connected parenting, we're just strengthening that neural pathway mm -hmm. as we learn these new things. So failure is part of it. And thankfully, we get to start over again and again, as many times as we need to. We just keep trying. Absolutely. Yeah, I had a supervisor tell me once, I would be frustrated because I'd say, I go in and tell them all this stuff. And this was probably before I had empathy for the parent. But I would say, you know, I, I go in and show them all this stuff. I don't think that they do it you know, after I leave, I think that I do an hour and then they, you know, they just go back to their life. And he told me, Rebecca, if for one hour a week, that family is getting modeled some alternative interventions, and that's it, that's all you do is model for them some alternative intervention, then you've done your job. And someday, maybe they might use one of those, you know, tools that they saw you do. But it's not about showing them in one hour and now 
you expecting somebody that's always in the situation. The reason you can show up and do it well is because you don't have to be in the situation all the time. <laughs> so I thought that was really valuable from a supervisor as well. That is really valuable. You know, we can just keep pouring into the parents. And as we do, you know, you're right. Someday one of these tools will just come to mind. I had a young mom put something on Instagram today where she's, she's known me for quite a while, but she read my book, The Connected Parent. And she just had this aha moment when her daughter was really dysregulated. And she said, do you want some gum? And her daughter was so surprised, you know, but she'd read in my book about gum being very helpful for regulating because of the deep pressure it puts in the jaw joints. And her daughter was so thrilled. And she, and she told her little girl, which this was beautiful. She said, your only job right now is to chew this gum. That just touched my heart so much. So, okay, so tell me how you went from being a caseworker doing post-adoption services to developing this entire equine program. The principles of natural horsemanship were to not be punitive, to take their life or death mentality at face value, to be relationship-based. I mean, there are so many correlations. And I had already known that. Uh, because horses are very different than another other types of animals because they're prey animals. So they're hypervigilant, a lot like kids that um, have trauma, and they're constantly waiting to see if they need to flee. So when they're in, they have right brain and left brain, and either they're learning or they're in survival. I mean, I was just like, oh, check, 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 check. <laughs> yeah. So so um, I said, like, somebody just needs to get these populations together, the, the horses and these kids together. And I looked, I Googled, tried to find programs that were specific to children with early developmental trauma or foster care in horses. And I didn't find a specific, specific program. So happened to be moving to Georgia at that time. I started out in Vermont, but I happened to move to Georgia at that time. And I um, was at kind of a crossroads in my life where I felt like I could, um, you know, explore other opportunities. So I walked onto a local horse rescue and I just said, hey, do you mind if I just like meet with some kids in foster care or that have been adopted here at the farm? They had a setup where volunteers really just came on and brushed horses anyway. It wasn't a bunch of structure to like who was there when and if you wanted to come give love to the horses, you could. So I felt like it was a good setting. They said, sure, sounds fine. So I put out some like advertisements or whatever and uh, parents were like, sure, free time at the barn and you'll watch my kid and cool. So I ended up having 12 different kids and I would do one-on-one -on -one mentorship with each one of them and that would be for one hour a week. So I had 12 hours plus I had a full-time job. So what I realized was what I was doing with the kids wasn't very impressive as far as like skills you needed like I was brushing the horses with the kids we were walking a horse in a circle we were petting a horse like we were I was like I do not need to be the one facilitating all of these meetings so I asked if other volunteers and other people of the community would be interested in hanging out with a kid and a horse and people said sure because it's kind of a unique opportunity so I I just threw together a slide deck and did a little bit of information on trauma, a little, you know, our approach, how we would approach, you know, behavioral situations, how we approach kids, and then a tiny bit on why horses are important for the work. I would give them a tiny bit of training at the farm. This is how you walk a horse. This is how we're around horses. And then they were off and running, and they met with their kid one hour a week. 
you can imagine that there were quite a few hiccups with that type of program model. And, you know, thank God I was young and didn't care about liability. And also, thank God nothing really bad happened. But I did find that mentors didn't really know what they were doing. They weren't, they didn't have enough direction. They didn't know how to handle certain situations. You know, they did things like bring a big thing of cupcakes to a session and then the kid ate all 12 of them. They're like, wow, he was really hungry. You know, just <laughs> stuff that I'm like, oh, I should probably write a policy around that. So we really did trial and error. But uh, over the years of running this program, uh, I ended up getting my own farm and get, you know, doing my own 501c3. And over the years of running the program, I developed policies and I developed um, the program model is that each kid gets a plan of care that says which goals they're working on so that the mentor knows what goals they're working on. The life skills that we work on with kids are actually developed out of challenges that uh, through years of being a case manager, it was about the same list of challenges. It wasn't that every kid had them, but they had some of these challenges on a list. So I kind of took those challenges and divided them up into life skill buckets self-worth, responsibility, independence, healthy relationships, self-regulation. So there's six different color-coded buckets. And so as I did an intake assessment, I developed a plan of care. And then I said, okay, this kid's a red, a purple, and a green kid. And those, those stand for life skills they're working on. So then I developed activities. Half of them are equine activities. Half of them are non-equine activities. And all the activities are color-coded as well. So the, the mentor comes to the barn. They know kind of which one. They don't need to be clinical at all. They don't need to understand why this develops this or why this. But they know that if they do that, that they're working on those life skills. And then we do daily activity logs, progress summaries. We even track now pre and post test data um, so that we can hopefully get this, um, hopefully get this to be evidence based. But uh, at some point in there. I think about three years ago, I shut down my uh, nonprofit and I had enough interest from other people in the industry to start this program. So I just developed the curriculum. I developed the training and I now license the brand. So we have about 15 stable homes locations and I give them ongoing support, all of our administrative assets, our media assets, all that stuff so that they can just start a program tomorrow and run with it. So how is um, your program, Stable Moments, different from other equine programs? Yeah, so mo a lot of equine programs are riding. So we do no riding. So in the reason why we actually have a blog post of why can't I ride, because you're going to get that question, right? Every kid's going to ask, like, why can't I ride the horse? Um, but we actually find that as far as relationship building, rather than using the horse or being able to like, okay, I get to the barn, I get to slap a saddle on this thing, I get to get on it, and I, I take from this relationship, it's really relationship building and partnering with the horse. So we're going to take care of the horse, we're going to brush the horse, we're going to look at the horse's body language. Horses are like so prolific with body language, so like, because they're so sensitive, they shake their little skin even when a fly lands on it. So we can start looking at the horse's body language and help a kid get attuned to their body language. Oh, his skin just got tight. Oh, his eyes just got wide. His ears just perked up. What do you think that means? We have a body language poster so they can, you'll see the kids go up to the poster and go, I think he's missing his friends um, in the pasture. You know, so they start to use their critical thinking skills and they start to use their attunement skills to see what the horse is thinking and feeling. 
and it actually translates to us talking about how their how their body is feeling. And then really the biggest other difference is the structure of the program. I haven't met another program out there that has, well, one that does solely foster and adopted and is trauma-informed. A lot of people use the word trauma-informed, but uh, specifically for this population, um, I haven't found another program and the structure, like the plans of care, the color-coded activities, tracking over 10 months so that, pe- so that kids understand that they will have the same horse the same mentor every single week for 10 months um, because a lot of these programs last, you know, six to eight weeks and it's just not enough. We're just starting to get to know the kids at three months in. They're starting to come out of their shell and the, the, the magic happens in the last five months of the program. Horses are really unique. How, um, like, could dogs, I know you're a horse person, but like, how are dogs different from horses in terms of their ability to be in a therapeutic relationship like this do you are you aware yeah absolutely I get and I get all the time that people are like oh my gosh like yes I know animal therapy is great or I know we could do this with dogs and I'm like "Mm." so I'm a dog person too I love all animals but horses are unique in the in the fact that they it's their prey animals dogs are predators so when horses have to be hyper vigilant they they sleep standing up they have to constantly be scanning their environment for threats. They sense changes in emotion, changes in energy. If we get big with our bodies, they perk up. If we get small with our bodies, they relax. I mean, they are a beautiful mirror of exactly what we are showing them. Whereas, you know, dogs are just unconditionally dogs. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're really great at that. Um, but you can really count on a horse to give you the feedback of where we're at in a relationship. I mean, even just some of the small activities like respect my bubble or where a kid just starts walking towards a horse. There's a point at where you're walking towards a horse where they're going to drop their head uh, away from you, drop their ears and not look at you. And that's them saying, I was kind of cool with you just a step ago, but this step now is making me a little uncomfortable. So what's really cool is as soon as you retreat, you take that one step back, they look forward at you again. Okay, I'm interested. So a kid starts to learn spatial boundaries. And you know what? I've actually had a lot of the activities that I do that are um, for horses and kids. We take the horse out of it. Maybe kids aren't ready to be with the horse, or we just need to practice it first. We take a mentor and a kid, maybe a kid that's way too much in personal space, doesn't understand those boundaries. We take a mentor and a kid, and we go, let's look at each other and walk towards each other one step at a time. Let's see where each other's boundaries are. And so with a kid, they can be like, this is too close, you know? And so it's like, oh, I'm so glad I know that about you. I'm so glad I'm not coming into your space without asking. And then maybe a mentor can go, this feels, you know, this feels good to me, this amount of space. And then they can reference that space when the kid is, you know, climbing on their back or something. So um, it's just interesting to slow things down and let us, you know, pick things apart by moment by moment. Well, it's helpful for me just that you defined the fact that dogs are predators and horses are prey because children who have experienced trauma, neglect, abuse are very much like a a prey animal. They are in a position to be the victim over and over. So I find that really, really interesting. That was helpful. Thank you for that. Do you have a 
a story of a client, obviously not a identifying story, but do you have any stories you could share with us about, you know, children that you've worked with and how the program has helped them? Yeah. So um, one particular boy really comes to mind. He showed up and he was super timid. Um, just a boy that was, he was very bright, but really shy and didn't make eye contact, looked at the ground. You know, I would say that there were some self-worth issues, but if you acknowledged him, he lit up like, oh, hi, yeah, I'm here. Somebody noticed me, um, which was really beautiful. And I, I didn't think that putting him with, you know, I tried to do mentor matchups the best I can, but sometimes it comes down to availability. And the only person available for this boy was like a 74-year-old woman. And I thought, I don't know if this will work, but it ended up being a beautiful relationship because he kind of took care of her and he would like make her a walking stick and make sure she was okay. And it was really sweet. But so he came and he started working with this horse named Minky and uh, their relationship grew. He was very, very good at the natural horsemanship stuff. And they were even doing this pretty advanced uh, activity where you have a horse go around like a round corral without any lead rope. And you can, through your body energy, you can make the horse go walk and then gallop and then come back to walk and then they come into you. It's called join up. And it's pretty well known in the natural horsemanship world. Well, so he was doing that with Minky, they were doing great. Then we got a pig at the farm. And if you have horses and you don't have a pig, don't get a pig, okay? Because this they're prey animals, horses are, and this horse thought she was gonna die every day that that pig was on the property. And it was not irrational. I mean, it was irrational, but she was just in her, I'm going to die brain. And it was real. As I tried to rehome this pig, she lost hair. She got ice ulcers. And as um, this boy would come to the barn, we would start talking to him about what was happening for her and how she was in this survival brain. And we, she got too jumpy to be safe in sessions. So I told the boy, you know, we can pick a new horse while we deal with this. And he said, absolutely not. I, that is my horse and I'm going to be with her. And he spent several sessions sitting outside the pasture saying, I know you're scared and it's okay to be scared. I mean, it was like, oh my gosh. And so he was like, and it's okay to be scared. And that pig is scary. You know, I get that. And I'm going to be here with you. Don't worry. I'm not choosing another horse. I'm going to be here for you. And it was like, he's saying what he needs to hear too. So it was so beautiful. So he, the horse, we got the pig rehomed and he's in a beautiful pig rescue and he has a beach bod and a girlfriend. So we don't need to worry about him. <laughs> but the, but Minky ended up growing her hair back and getting okay. So this boy started working with her again and, and kind of rehabilitating her into the program for us. And when he came to us, he had no friends. That was one of the things is he had no friends at school. He was picked on at school. And he ended up writing an essay about his journey with Minky and how he would lead her around this big round pen by himself and that he was training her to do stuff and how amazing this mayor of his was. And he read it aloud at in at his class at school and he got friends i mean kids were like wow that's really cool that you're doing that they saw his confidence kind of come up they saw his pride and he ended up having a birthday party at the barn and six of his friends showed up so 
it was just one of those like that self-worth piece was so big and the empathy piece and that that is definitely one of my favorite stories from our program very very touching and beautiful and so encouraging what kids do you think are best suited to this program i think that you know all kids can learn life skills we we specifically do early developmental trauma so there has to have been you know sometime in foster care or adoption some type of you know uh, neglect abuse or abandonment but um the the kids that aren't the only ones that we wouldn't uh, take on are possibly ones that need to be referred to a higher level of care. If they've been kicked out of every group home or something, we just are not a clinical place for uh, for them to be able to get therapy. This is life skills. This is equine assisted learning. So this is not uh, in-depth therapy. So that's important to know. But other than that, I mean, anyone, anyone uh, that is even doing great or just having some struggles or struggles a lot. You know, we have plenty of kids that were in and out of the psych ward in between sessions and they did great at the barn. Like, thank God they had the barn to go to. And there was one girl that would just bring her guitar every time. And she just sat next to the horse in the pasture and played her guitar to the horse. And that was just like her moment. And her mom would be like, never see her this connected and happy. What's your dream for the program? What would you like to see happen? So I'm a really big global thinker and I like scale. So my dream and actually what's going to be happening is I'm going to take the horses out of the program, not continually, not forever or not. I'm going to do that in conjunction with the equine. So what I've found is the magic of our program isn't the horses. The magic of our program is mentorship, structured mentorship, where mentors know what they're doing, they're developing life skills, and they know how to therapy. Like, we will even take a, an activity like baseball and make it therapeutic, make it so that we're saying an affirmation when we hit each base, or we're complimenting each other, or we're seeing how slowly we can throw the ball back and forth and how fast we can. So it just adds a layer of making things a little bit more therapeutic than just we're going to throw a ball. So what I want to do, because the crazy statistic that is if every church or every religious organization fostered one kid, that there wouldn't be any kids in foster care. So I'm like, so we can end the foster care crisis. It's just going to take somebody to give people on an on-ramp because right now, there's no on-ramp. I mean, there's foster a kid or bake a lasagna for people that are fostering a kid. And I truly believe if the community became more trauma-informed, the community understood what these families go through, what these kids need, that foster families would feel more supported and more people would choose to enter into that world because it wouldn't be so scary. So the program uh, is being transitioned into a community-based organization slash church program. And that one will be just with mentorships and kids, same plans of care, same everything. There's just not going to be equine activities. And I hope to, to get this in every church that wants to serve foster adopted kids because I hear, one, I know that they're called, that, that it's in the Bible too. And I also know that um, I've talked to a lot of pastors that say, we really want to do this. We're not doing it well. And I want to say, here's, here's exactly how you do it. Start a mentorship program. And where do they get their mentors? They ask no sermon. Hey, we need 15 of you to step up and show up once a week for a kid. I mean, wives will be nudging their husbands. And 
And I think that you can get enough mentors and then it allows people to dip a toe. I would never realize this was going to be part of this program, but mentors of ours have gone on to be foster parents. They wanted an hour a week. They wanted to be able to do something that wasn't such a commitment first. That's my vision. I like it. I think one of the the gifts of what you're putting together is that people do want to help. They, they do want to volunteer. There are a lot of people who care about these children and, but they need someone to show them how. And, you know, maybe they don't want to or have the capacity to go through an entire many, many, many week long training program. But if they can be taught some simple skills and they have a plan to follow, so many people I think would be willing and able to do that. I agree. And it's not what we're asking, like the hour, the moment, the things we're doing. It's super attainable. In fact, it's one of our things is attainable goals for the kids, for the program, for everything. It's supposed to be. That's why moment is in there. I mean, we're not trying to do anything that's that's we can all do it. Yeah. Oh, that's so great. Is there anything else you would like to share with our listeners? We have a podcast, the Stable Moments podcast, and we have a Facebook group for the podcast. The podcast is actually for uh, parents, for program uh, service providers or program directors, for mentors. My purpose, my goal is to make the community, have there be a, a, a bridge to gap this kind of, there's the foster parents over here and there's the case managers over here and then there's the rest of the community that, that is kind of ignorant to it all. So um, I would like to bridge this this uh, community. So that is what the, the podcast is about. We talk about, we have therapists on, but we have foster parents on. We have uh, youth that have aged out of foster care. And we're all just trying to figure out, you know, what's the, what's the best way. And hear everybody's voices so that we can give everybody a voice kind of in this arena. And we can all learn from each other. So, uh, hey, if anybody knows of a church that's like, my church needs this program. You can reach out to me as well. You can join that Facebook group or reach out to me on my email, Rebecca at stablemoments.com. Um, but yeah, we're planning on piloting that. And I know that there are churches out there that would love a program like this. I think so. Well, we will have all of the information in the show notes for this episode of how people can find you. Uh, if they want to contact you to learn more about the program uh, your podcast, which is so great, your Facebook group. We will have all of that in the show notes. So those of you who are listening while you're driving or washing dishes or whatever, don't worry. You can just go to our website and we'll give you the um, specific web address for that in a moment. Well, Rebecca, thank you so much. This was great. I learned so much from you and I wish you're, you're really far from me, right? Are you in Florida? I'm in Florida, yeah. And I live in North Idaho. So we probably won't be just stopping by to visit each other, but <laughs> I would love to get to see your program in action at some point. Well, hopefully we will have an Idaho location sooner than later. That would be great. People are into horses here for sure. So, <laughs> all right. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. Lisa, what a great conversation with Rebecca. I Wish I had her closer to me so she could <laughs> hang out with some of my kids. I love that she has made this a simple program that can be spread far and wide. I just thought like, gosh, I think I should call every barn in my area and see like, 
hey guys, could you help out with this? Yeah, it's really neat. She she obviously has a gift for seeing the bigger picture and for growing this program in a way that's going to serve a lot of families. And, you know, one of my favorite parts of the whole interview is just her story of her own personal growth as a young adoption caseworker who went from really kind of judging the parents to her eyes being open to what parents need in order to really support and care for their kids. So I thought that was a really important part of the interview. I'm always thankful for professionals who have compassion for those of us who are in the trenches of parenting. Yeah, maybe we should propose that as our next business model is to help transform the perspectives of all professionals who work with their families, because I certainly appreciate that perspective a lot and, you know, have been with other adoption professionals, quote unquote, who I felt judged by, who really didn't get what we were going through. Right, right. Well, if you want to connect more with Rebecca, you can find her on her website, which is stablemoments.com. And of course, we'll have more information in the show notes, which you can find at theadoptionconnection.com slash 111. Before you go, we'd love to connect with you on social media. You can find us on Facebook or Instagram as The Adoption Connection. Thanks so much for listening. We love having you. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a quick review over on iTunes. It will help us reach more moms who may be feeling alone. And remember, until next week, you're a good mom doing good work, and we're here for you. The music for the podcast is called New Day and was created by Lee Rosevere.